0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life changing message of Jesus Christ. this is crosswinds Church, and now here 's Pastor Jordan Gowing well as i uh, as I mentioned it is is wonderful to be back with you uh, this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up uh, to revelation twenty and we 're just going to go ahead and jump right in to uh, a, a very um, fascinating passage, very uh, difficult, complex passage. And uh, I haven't preached in... in Several weeks and so we're just gonna go ahead and jump right back in and, and uh no no smooth entry here. We're just gonna go ahead and go for it. I mentioned last uh or I mentioned earlier last couple weeks I've been in Tanzania. Uh I, I'm gonna share more about that next week. Uh but wanted to just mention one thing about what I was doing there and uh and the reason is is because it's very important I think for our um our passage this morning. While I was in Tanzania, I was spending some time uh, with a group of pastors, and we were going through basically the big picture, the big story of the Bible. And so we, we talked about how that even though the Bible was written over thousands of years, it was written by dozens of different authors, it has one message, has one focus. All of the Bible is focused on God's unshakable, unstoppable plan that we find in Jesus. So everything in the Bible, from the very beginning to the very end, points us to Jesus. And maybe more specifically, we could say that everything in the Bible points us to God's glory, which is revealed in Jesus. As I uh, began my time in in Tanzania, one of the other teachers led us to this passage from Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When we read the Bible, any and every passage as we read the Bible, we should read it primarily with this in mind that it is revealing to us something glorious about God. It's revealing to us something glorious about who Jesus is. And so in this series, as we talk about what the Bible has to tell us about life after death, it would be wise for us to remember it in this context. Every single thing that we talk about, one minute after you die, your resurrected body, this morning we talk about the millennium, next week we talk about rewards and judgment, every single thing that we talk about is focused On God's glory being revealed and eventually being spread to every corner of the earth. Pastor Kurt, last couple of weeks has led us through, uh, as I mentioned, what happens one minute after we die. Also led us through our resurrected bodies. This morning, we're going to talk about a very uh, interesting, fascinating concept, and that is the millennium. Many of you may have heard of the millennium before. Many of you may think that I'm talking about millennials, and that is not the case. Uh, One theologian described how complex it is to figure out the millennium by saying this. The millennium is God's reign of peace that Christians like to fight about. That's essentially what the millennium is. There are many different ways to interpret the passage we're going to look at this morning. Godly men and women uh, of all stripes have uh, different interpretations of this passage than the one I'm going to share with you this morning. We're not going to talk about that. We're just going to simply focus on what I think is the best interpretation, what our church feels is the best understanding of this passage. Essentially, when we talk about the millennium, we're talking about a time when Jesus returns to earth, And he establishes his 1,000-year reign that eventually will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. This is called a premillennial view of the millennium. That Jesus returns pre or before the millennium and is the one who starts it. Now, uh, to to understand this this confusing subject, here's what I want to do for us or what I want us to do this morning. First, I want us to open up Revelation 20. I want us to spend some time looking at what this passage says and try to interpret it and understand it faithfully in the context of the Book of Revelation. After that, I want to take some time and look at what exactly this Millennium Kingdom or this Millennial Kingdom will be like. What is what is the purpose or what what, what can we look forward to about this kingdom? And then finally I want us to take some time and, and ask the question why? If you're like me, a passage like Revelation 20 isn't difficult to understand. What is perplexing or difficult for us to understand, or at least for me, is why did God orchestrate things this way? Why did God decide to usher in a millennial kingdom rather than just jumping immediately to the new heavens and the new earth? It seems like that would have been simpler, at least in my very small understanding of the end. As we study this passage, I think that we can land on one simple but hopefully a powerful truth for us this morning, and that is this. The millennial kingdom, God's millennium that we will see, is a part of God's plan to reverse the effects of Genesis 3. We're familiar with Genesis 3, that is the sin of Adam and Eve, the rebellion that takes place in the garden, and the curse that is brought upon creation because of Adam and Eve's sin. And in a small but significant and powerful way, the millennium is showing us how God is at work reversing the curse. God has a plan that will never be thwarted. God has purposes that will stand, and we see them stand here in Revelation 20. Now, Revelation is a uh, notoriously difficult book to understand. Uh, One of my professors actually told us that it was the easiest book to understand, and I dropped the class immediately afterward because I couldn't understand what he was talking about. Revelation is difficult to understand. It's especially difficult to understand when you don't read it in context. And so, even though we're going to spend most of our time in Revelation 20, first I want us to take a look at Revelation chapter 19. So, go ahead and open up to Revelation 19. And I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray, because we need God to come and uh, speak to us this morning. Amen? All right, let's, let's pray. Father, it is good to gather around your word. And as we look at this passage uh, that can be complex, it can be difficult, uh, that there are many interpretations um, from many godly men and women, we ask that your spirit would come. We ask that you would come and speak to us, teach us more of who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Revelation chapter 19 tells us all about Jesus' return. Tells us in verses 11 through 21 that Jesus returns as a conquering king. Jesus' first advent, at Jesus' first coming, we see Jesus coming as the suffering servant, the one who comes to buy a people through his own sacrificial death from every language, from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, even as Phil just mentioned. And yet, it's Jesus' second coming. We see a completely different picture of this suffering servant. We see Jesus returning as a conquering king, coming on a white horse. Verses 11 through 16 describe how powerful Jesus is. Take a look at these verses. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This picture of Jesus is one of absolute power. It is a picture of Jesus coming as a conquering king, leading his troops as a victorious general. So powerful is this king that he does not need the might of arms to defeat the rebellion that is before him. The words here that that are meant to be taken symbolically, the sword coming from Jesus' mouth, isn't meant to be taken literal, that Jesus is pulling a sword out of his mouth. It's speaking to the power of his word. This is one who speaks. And the nations are brought into submission. And that's what Revelation chapter 19 tells us. The rest of the chapter tells us that Jesus is victorious simply through his word. Simply by speaking, Jesus is victorious. There is no battle. There is no question of who will be victorious. Jesus speaks and his power brings victory. It is the power of this voice that brings us back or, or should bring us back to the, the idea of Genesis chapter 1 of the God who speaks and creation comes into existence. This is the same God who spoke and life came into existence and here Jesus speaks And rebellion is crushed. Immediately after, we can look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And we see this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Notice the first word here in this chapter. It says, then. So Jesus speaks and the rebellion before him is destroyed. And then what happens next is an angel comes from heaven. And he takes the serpent and throws him in a bottomless pit. I have no idea what that means, if there's a literal pit that he's going to throw him into, or if this is just symbolic of the absolute power of Jesus restraining the ancient serpent. But we are clear that this serpent is held captive. And note, again, the surety of God's power. In the aftermath of Jesus' uncontested, perfect victory, an angel comes from heaven to lock away the evil one. And I'm sure the serpent fights, but he is no match for the will of God, and he is locked in a bottomless pit. Notice again, The the connection here between Jesus' words in Revelation 19 and the words of creation in Genesis chapter 1. But there's another parallel here. What is the dragon called? Well, if we look at verse 2, it says, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. So there's a parallel in chapter 19 between the beginning of time and the end of time that Jesus speaks and and things happen, and now we see another parallel. The author of Revelation, John, is making very clear to us that this dragon that will appear at the end of time is the exact same serpent that deceived Adam and Eve in the very beginning. Revelation is making it very clear that this is the one who is the enemy of God, who has led humanity in rebellion against God. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a bit. The serpent is thrown into a bottomless pit. He's unable to escape God's power. And I want us to just pause and notice one more truth from Revelation. When we look at Revelation, we are reminded that even when life seems uncertain, even when the battle seems to be unknown, who will the victor be between good and evil, even when it seems like evil wins, evil evil wins either on a personal scale or on a massive global or national scale, this passage reminds us we can be 100% confident. You can stake your life on this truth. God will win. Good will prevail. The serpent is thrown into a pit. And notice the purpose here in verse 3. He's thrown into a pit so that he will not deceive the nations any longer. The serpent is the one who has led the nations to conspire against the king, and now he is the one who is locked up. And as we enter into this millennial kingdom, we're entering into a period of peace, a period of rest that has not been seen since before the serpent appeared in Genesis chapter 3. It is a time of peace because there is no tempter. There is no deceiver. There is no one who is leading people astray. And verses 4 through 6 describe a little bit of what this kingdom is like. It says this, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And it had not received its mark on their foreheads or their heads. They came to life. In other words, they were resurrected. And reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. But this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. These verses tell us that not only does Jesus bind the serpent through one of his angels, but also that Jesus' reign in the millennial kingdom is not alone. Jesus allows his saints. To reign alongside of him. Those who were martyred. Those who were martyred for the word of God. Or for refusing to bow to idols. Will come to life. Will be resurrected. But it's not just those. It's also those who refuse to worship the beast. They are the ones who will come to life again. And reign with Christ. I think what's being described here is not a specific segment of the church, but it's actually referring to all Christians. It's referring to every single Christian. This is their resurrection. This is when they will come to life, will we receive our resurrected bodies. All who remain faithful to Christ, who find their names written in the book of life, will come to life at this moment, and will reign with Christ in His millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter 13 tells us this. Revelation 13 verses 7 through 8 describe those who refuse to bow before the beast. And it says this. Also, it was allowed, it being the beast, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If your name was written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, if you remain faithful, if you do not bow to, and, and again, we don't have a specific beast in mind here, but we have a culture that is opposed To Christ. If you remain faithful, if your name is written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, here in Revelation 20, you will come to life. You will be resurrected. You will be given your beautiful, glorified, resurrected body that Pastor Kurt talked about last week, and you will reign with Christ. The faithful throughout the ages will be resurrected in our resurrected bodies and will reign with Christ. What an astounding, beautiful thought. And I just want us to pause at that for a second. Marvel at this glorious gift of grace that God offers to us. You, one of God's creatures who willingly rebelled against him, you, one of God's creatures who willingly has chosen to turn your back on him rather than trusting his goodness wholeheartedly. You, one of God's creatures who turns your back on him every day. After all that, God looks at you and he says, reign with me. Rule with me. My kingdom is Here. My son has been faithful, and his prize is now your prize, too. Reign alongside my son, be my faithful representative in the world. What an incredible gift! Not just that God would save us, but that he would choose us to rule alongside him in the millennial kingdom of his son. And as we'll see in a few weeks, to rule alongside his son in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's not just to rule in this kingdom, it's also to serve as priests as we see in in verse 6. In the Old Testament, the priests, among other things, were those who brought the people close to God. In the Old Testament, the king, among other things, was the one who ensured that God's law, God's word, was upheld and carried out. And at the end of these verses, we see a picture of what this kingdom will be like and what our role will be like in that kingdom. A glorious promise here of the king that we will be priests and that we will reign. In other words, we as God's people will serve as ruling priests. That we will bring people close to God and we will uphold God's word. We will make sure the nations know and are taught God's word. We can already see that this kingdom is different than what we see here. It is a kingdom without a tempter. It is a kingdom where Jesus reigns on the earth. And yet it's also different from the new heavens and the new earth. The nations still exist, but they live at peace under the benevolent rule of Jesus. We have been called, we have been commissioned to serve as governors as rulers underneath our king throughout the earth, teaching the nations about their loving king. And I want you to just imagine for a second this kingdom. Imagine this kingdom of peace, not spreading just from sea to shining sea, but spreading to every corner of the globe. A kingdom where the racism of Charlottesville is smashed into oblivion because a brown-skinned Middle Eastern Jew sits on his throne and people from every tribe and every skin color reign with him. This is a kingdom that spans the entire globe. The threat of war is gone. It's not through some sort of false Pax Romana or Pax Americana, but because the ruler of the world is just. And the ruler of the world is in control. And the ruler of the world is benevolent. And the ruler of the world is loving and his rule over the nations. Imagine for a second a kingdom with no need for social safety nets because the king himself addresses the needs of the impoverished. Addresses the needs of the downcast, of the disadvantaged. The king himself knows the needs and will see that they are met. Again, this is a picture that's distinct from Jesus's heavenly reign right now. And yet also is different than his complete and total reign in the new heaven's And the new earth. And so we ask ourselves, well, what is this kingdom like? The Old Testament points to what this kingdom is like. Isaiah specifically spends time looking at this kingdom. Isaiah chapter 65 describes this kingdom of God that comes on the earth. Verse 20 says this No more shall there be in it, be in this kingdom. An infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. This chapter describes God's reign of peace on the earth, and yet death still exists. So great is God's kingdom. So great is this reign of peace that it will be, even though death still exists, even though death still hasn't been defeated finally, and that will take place in the last days, peace will reign supreme to the point that the the idea of death at a young age, dying premature, will be close to extinction. The king in his peace will make sure that war has ceased. He will address problems of malnourishment, of child abuse, of poverty, of countless other ailments that affect our fallen world. And he will make sure that peace reigns because he is our risen king. See, this seems to describe a time where the poor and the wicked still exist, and yet they're both treated fairly by the Messiah. It's not just humanity that submits to the rule of Christ either. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us that the animal kingdom will even submit to the rule of this risen and reigning Christ. Take a a look at, at this very famous, very popular passage and what it says here. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. Again, notice the poor still exist. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He shall kill the, anoint- kill the wicked. The wicked, again, still exists. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. So great is the king's reign, so great is the king's rule that the animal kingdom will submit to his rule and to his reigning here in the new heavens and the new earth. Remember, God will reign. And it will be beautiful and glorious. Every facet of this new millennium points us with eager hope, eager expectation to the fully realized kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth. We ask ourselves, what's the purpose of this millennium? What's the purpose of of God ushering in a, a temporary kingdom before we get to what eternity will fully be like in the new heavens and the new earth? This is why we spent a few moments as we began talking about everything in the Bible, everything that is a part of God's plan of salvation points us to his glory. So consider three ways that the millennium points us to the glory of Christ First, the millennium shows us that God's plan will never be thwarted. The millennium shows us that God's plans will never be thwarted. We've already mentioned some of the parallels here between Genesis 1 through 3, Revelation 19 through 22. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that God created humanity with a specific purpose. Verse 26 of Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after, his, or after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created humanity with a purpose. And we see that that purpose here was to have dominion to rule over the earth. That was what he commissioned Adam and Eve with, to be rulers over the earth. And while this will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth, it's clear here in the millennial kingdom that God has not forgotten. God has not abandoned his plan. God's purposes will not be thwarted. God's glory is revealed in the millennium because even though the serpent tried his hardest to thwart God's plan, the serpent has failed. God's plans and God's purposes will be revealed and God is proven glorious because of it. Second reason why the millennium shows us God's glory. The millennium shows us the glory of God's plan. Maybe a better way of saying that is the the millennium shows us the glory of God's rule. If you have ever wondered what life would have been like if Adam and Eve had never eaten the fruit of the tree, the millennium gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what life would have been like. It gives us a glimpse that again will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. But here is a picture of society that is at work under God's rule with God completely in charge. It is a glorious picture of God's kingdom at work in every sphere. Social, economic, religious, relational, academic, and on and on and on. And God has proven glorious because of how perfect everything works when he is in charge. One final reason. The millennium shows us God's righteousness in the midst of judgment. It shows us God's righteousness in the midst of judgment. The serpent has been removed from the scene. There is no one who is deceiving the nations. And yet, as we see in Revelation 20, secret rebellion still grows in the hearts of man. After the thousand-year reign of Christ, we see this. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. A fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented, they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Somehow, humanity, when everything is perfect, somehow humanity nurses a rebellion against God. Somehow in the hearts of humanity, Rebellion against God continues to grow and that when the serpent reappears, as many as the sand of the sea are in rebellion against God. How is it that humanity still rebels against God when the deceiver is gone, when the tempter is gone? Well, Genesis tells us that answer as well. Genesis 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man. and He saw that it was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Lest we think that humanity is good once the serpent is gone, once we are outside of the influence of the serpent, lest we think that we are good. Humanity here after the millennium proves otherwise. The rebellion against God proves otherwise. The millennium proves to us God's righteousness in the face of any accusation that his judgments are unjust, the millennium reminds us that humanity may have been deceived by the serpent, but humanity is fully to blame. It is the evil of our own hearts, not the serpent. It leads to the sin of racism. It is the evil of our own hearts, not the serpent that is to blame for the murder of the innocent. It is the evil of our own hearts, not the serpent that is to blame for our defiant rebellion against a good, holy, perfect God. The millennium is a powerful reminder to us of God's righteousness. That God is a good God. And it's also a reminder to us of our responsibility for sinning against that glorious righteousness of God. So if we were to sum up the millennium, I think that we could describe it in this way. The millennium, the millennial kingdom, reveals to us God's glory in his victory over human rebellion. The millennial kingdom reveals to us God's glory and his victory over human rebellion. The entirety of human history is a history of rebellion. It is a history of turning our backs on God and yet rather than starting over, God commits himself to his plan. He makes a way for us to reign with him. And so as we close, if you're a Christian this morning, just ask, do you, do you revel in the glory of this coming kingdom? Do you stand in awe of the idea that you will reign with Christ? Do the words here of Revelation 20 fill you with eager expectation, eager hope for what God has in store for you? that you look forward to the kingdom where God has decided that you will reign alongside of him. Do you hear the words of Revelation 20, verse 6? These words right here. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When you hear those words... Do you consider yourself blessed? Do you consider yourself blessed that you partake in the first resurrection and will never have the experience of the second death? That you will reign as priests and kings alongside of Jesus? Those of you who aren't Christians, make no mistake, the blessing Of verse 6 is impossible to attain without Jesus. There is no escape from the second death without Christ. But there is still time to repent. Revelation 19, Revelation 20, really the end of, of Revelation, makes it very clear the rebellion, resistance, they're futile. Resisting the one who crushes rebellion at the sound of his voice is not brave, it's just foolish. The, the powerful one, the all-powerful creator, the one who offers you the opportunity of a lifetime, if you lay down your arms of rebellion, if you turn to him and find life in the blessedness that is yours in Christ Jesus, Perhaps this morning you've never placed your trust in Him. Perhaps you find yourself in a place where you're not sure. You don't know if you've placed your trust in Him. Do not delay. If you feel God urging you to turn to Him in repentance and faith, do not delay. In fact, I I just urge us all to pray this prayer, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not. This is a prayer we can all pray, so please pray with me right now. Father, we, we rejoice at the promise of your word. We confess that we are worthy of your judgment, but we marvel at the thought that you have made a way for us to not only be saved from the coming judgment, but God, that you desire us What's more, you desire us to reign with you in your coming kingdom. What an incredible gift, God. And so, Lord, as we we look at our lives, we plead for forgiveness, not because of any merit of our own, but solely because of the work of your Son, the one who has made a way for us to have fellowship with you. God, we commit ourselves to you to follow you in repentance and in faith. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, make us clean. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.